Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On our program tonight, the Canadians stranded in China because of the coronavirus outbreak could be heading back home by Thursday. But not all of the Canadians are guaranteed a seat on the plane. We'll have the latest on continuing efforts to get the Canadians out of China. The Federal Court of Appeal rules against Indigenous nation uh, communities trying to block the expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. We'll have the details of the unanimous ruling, reaction, and what it means for the multi-billion dollar energy project. The Parliamentary Budget Officer backs up the government's claim that most households across the country will get more money back in rebates than they pay in federal carbon taxes. Yves Giroux will be here to explain his analysis. And former interim Conservative Party leader Ronna Ambrose returns to Parliament Hill to lend her support to a Liberal government bill she first introduced. She'll join us to discuss that and the Conservative leadership race she decided to pass on. But we'll begin tonight with the latest developments in the Canadian response to the coronavirus outbreak. There's a second case of the coronavirus now in British Columbia, bringing to five the total number in this country. And we got an update today from the federal government on the efforts to repatriate more than 300 Canadians who've been stranded in China because of the outbreak. Some Canadians in China have received notice from the Canadian government that a chartered plane will be ready to fly most of them home early Thursday morning. But that timeline still remains uncertain and some of the stranded Canadians have been told they may not get on that flight because of limited space and because some do not have a Canadian passport. Here's what the Prime Minister had to say on his way into a cabinet meeting this morning. Right now there is a larger number of Canadians asking for evacuation than there is space on the plane. That's why we have already got an option on the second plane, although we've seen from experience of other countries that uh, sometimes people who want to come aren't able to make it to the airport, so we'll make a decision based on how full the plane is when we come back, whether or not we exercise the option of the second plane. That was the Prime Minister this morning. We also got an update from the Ministers of Health and Foreign Affairs today who made it clear the wheels are in motion to carry out the airlift, but there are still some challenges, including the fact that 308 people have said they want to be flown back to Canada, but only 280 of them have Canadian passports. And there's also a decision to make on whether a second plane will be needed. Let's hear from Patty Haidu and Francois-Philippe Champagne. You probably saw that our plane is on its way to Hanoi. Uh, we will keep you posted as the plane land and, and when we can stage what I call step two of the operation, which is to go from Hanoi to Wuhan. Uh, the reason why we stage there is because usually you get the permission to enter the airspace in China within hours. So based on best practice from our colleagues, we know that we need to have a plane ready, fuel, and with the crew on board uh, to be ready to fly in just when we get the permission. Uh, as you know and you've seen, you can enter the airspace only during the nighttime for evacuation of, of people. So we'll be pre-positioned to do that. Uh, we have informed Canadians who have been on the manifest number one, as we call it. So the first ones to be evacuated have been contacted overnight. Uh, they know and we have advised them of the procedures to get there. And, and my overall message to Canadians will, will work for everyone. I know there's been uh, talks about Canadian citizens, permanent residents. Obviously, the 
indication we got from the uh, officials in China was that a Canadian citizen would be allowed to leave and to maintain family unity with respect to uh, children. So we're going to continue to uh, press. Uh, I understand there's a number of permanent residents who would like to be repatriated as well. What can I say is that the health authority so far in China have, have indicated that it would only let uh, people who carry foreign passports to leave and maintain some family unity. That's what we're, wor uh, we're working on. But I will continue to advocate, I believe, obviously, for every Canadian who wants to be repatriated. Will I spoke you, to... Can you clarify? Sure. So if any of those um, people went into China on their Chinese passport, if they're a dual national, so that, will they be allowed to leave work. China? So China has been crystal clear for everyone watching. Foreign national traveling on foreign passports will be allowed if they do not uh, provide symptoms when their last check at the airport to depart will be allowed to be departed. That rule has been applied to every nation in the world. And what we advocated for when I had a call with the foreign minister of China, like my counterparts, because I've been talking to Secretary Rob this morning, I will have a call with Keiko Mas, my, my German colleague. We have been advocating for family unity. So what we said to the Chinese authority, we said, obviously, if there were infant, we need to preserve family unity. So if the primary caregiver would be a permanent resident of Canada, or for that matter, a, Ch a Chinese national, the indication we received from the Chinese authorities that they would let that primary caregiver to fly in with the infant so we don't have infant, obviously, by themselves in the plane. So, but, but their position for the health emergency they're dealing with has been clear to every government in the world. It's foreign national who travel on foreign passports. So, for, for families could be split up if you have mixed status. For example, a Canadian citizen with citizen children, but a permanent resident spouse, they could be split up because there is someone who can travel with the kids. The permanent resident may have to stay behind because of China's position. Correct. And this is not just about Canada. They did the same for the United States. For that's the position they have so far. Obviously, what I'm saying um, is that we have been advocating for repatriating because obviously I saw the news, I saw this, the family stories. Obviously everyone wants to do their best to bring all these people home. I understand their, their attachment to Canada, they want to come back and, and I feel uh, the compassion to bring them. However, I have to work with the Chinese health authorities who have been very clear that those who will be allowed to board are foreign nationals who travel on foreign passports. So so when will, will the second plane be deployed? Well, it, the numbers are up to what now? And when will the second well, plane we're, be deployed? We're, we're, we're about uh, 300 uh, people who have asked. You know, the number fluctuating. I think I've seen 308 recently. But I will update Canadians both on the flights, both on the numbers that we've done daily. Uh, as you appreciate, when we contact people, some people decide to come. Some tell us they don't want to come anymore. And if I look at best practices in terms of what happens with other repatriation, uh, the number of no-show is about 20%. So that's why we keep on moving. But we needed to provide the manifest uh, to the Chinese authority because not only we need to provide the manifest, but we need to provide the, the plate number of the vehicle. People are going to go to the airport, uh, the vehicle number, the number of passengers. So there's a whole process where we have a team on the ground to provide consular assistance. All the evidence suggests so far that asymptomatic transmission is not possible. We have to go with the body of evidence. Uh, obviously, we continue to research the virus. The virus also can change and adapt, and that is the nature of viruses in general. But as of this time, evidence is suggesting that it is not uh, transmissible when a person is asymptomatic. Despite that, is there any concern or anything in place to try and screen people 
who are asymptomatic for the virus so that they're not carrying it over here. In terms of the people coming back yes. from China? So uh, what we do know quite clearly from the virus behavior is that uh, the outset of transmissibility is 14 days, and that's why we've placed all passengers under a 14-day quarantine to be certain that they won't develop symptoms and, and, and the virus during, during the time in which they readjust here So in then Canada. there's no way to screen for somebody before they get on the plane to see if they have it, even though they are asymptomatic? Uh, no, the screening would solely be done through a complex test that would uh, obviously have to go through a variety of lab checks, which would be quite extensive and difficult to do, given the circumstance that China finds itself in, in terms of the thousands of those tests that they're conducting. Um, the best way right now to detect uh, the potential of having the virus is through the symptoms and obviously the location in which people are traveling from. And in this case, the individuals are coming from the epicenter of the uh, outbreak, and so uh, it's prudent then to monitor them for 14 so days. So on the plane, what's the threshold then? For any symptoms that any would be any any respiratory symptoms that are similar to cold or flu symptoms, runny nose, sneezing, coughing, any kind of uh, you know discharge, uh, those are the kinds of things that uh, will be looked for, as well as temperature checks. It's taken a long time to get this plane in now, and we're told there's manifest number one because of the demand of people that want evacuation. There's more demand than there are seats. Have you got a sense of how quickly a second plane could get in? I mean, this has taken a while uh, because of the complexity of it, should we ex expect it to take this long again to get the second plane in, or has the experience to date accelerated the process for a second? I think we'll be in a much better position to have a second plane. I think, as I've said before, the delay in terms of the first plane was really not having a sense of how many Canadians needed that support. And that uh, led us to believe that we might be able to extricate Canadians using our allied uh, partners uh, who had additional space on planes that they were using. So we weren't actually thinking that we had the demand that we did. And once it became clear within the next couple days of speaking about the need to register with the Global Affairs Canada, it became clear that we were going to need our own plane and so how many seats are there on the first plane the first plane has 250 seats and you have 308 asking to leave uh, the numbers fluctuate day to day so these are the most recent numbers I know as of yesterday uh, again uh, people sometimes change their minds as well and what we've learned from our international partners who have already repatriated their citizens is that there are a number of no-shows as well sometimes uh, for reasons that we don't know but uh, certainly obviously some people are as I mentioned uh, they are they are uh, actually staying in in the region for extended periods of time maybe they're students maybe they're working in a contract capacity and so there these are difficult decisions that some families are in in terms of whether they leave their 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 studies or their work and come back to Canada or not. Just yeah. no, uh, do you know a common cold? If you have symptoms of a common cold, you can't go, get on the plane. That would right? be correct. In terms of there, there seems you have the virus, are we still at? I think it's four, and how are they doing? All four are healthy uh, and cleared. Uh, uh, in terms of new cases, no, we have no more confirmed new cases. No, sorry, sorry, whether to call it a pandemic or not. So, um, and last week you said there was no change just because it was designated an emergency by WHO. But where do you stand on whether this is or has the potential to be a pandemic? Well, a pandemic has some definitions in terms of outbreak and the ability to actually contain that outbreak. And at this point, the global, the World Health Organization is not calling it that. Certainly, uh, I think it's been noted that China is undertaking a significant effort to contain the virus in China. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think Dr. Tam yesterday said that this has actually never been attempted in 
recent public health history. Uh, and so we remain on guard as a world and as a world health community to see if their efforts will be uh, successful. And obviously there, I think, uh, are sparks of the virus that have managed to emit from the epicenter and countries are working very hard to make sure that they don't spread. And we'll have to continually assess that over the next several days. Now to a major court ruling today and a major victory for the federal government. The Federal Court of Appeal today in a unanimous ruling dismissed the case mounted by indigenous groups against the approval of the $7.5 billion Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. CPAC's Marc-André Cossette's been on the story today and he joins me now in our studios to look at the court decision and reaction to it. Marc-André, before we get into what exactly happened today, let's talk about how we got here. What was the case presented to the Federal Court of Canada? Right, so to understand today's decision, you have to actually go back all the way to August 2018. And that's when the Federal Court of Appeal, the same court who made today's decision, actually invalidated uh, the Federal Cabinet's first approval of the Trans Mountain Project because it found that it had not adequately consulted First Nations along the pipeline right. route. So what the federal government did in that case is it hired former Supreme Court Justice Frank Yacobucci to basically launch a renewed round of more focused consultations. And ultimately, Cabinet approved that, uh, that project for a second time last June. But the First Nations involved in today's case are again saying that the second this do-over was also inadequate uh, they described it I'm going to quote here as window dressing box ticking and nice sounding words so they basically took the federal government to court again to see if what was done this time around was sufficient all right the ruling today was uh, was uh, so people understand these are three federal court of appeal judges all right. three of them uh, sided with the government on this what, what did the judges say in their ruling because that it, there was some pretty strong language and a pretty strong conclusion to to their finding Absolutely, and so they did rule ultimately that what was done this time around was sufficient to meet the government's duty to consult and that considering the benefits and the drawbacks of the project, it should go ahead as it was in the national interest. And more specifically, I'm going to read a quote here. Uh, the court found that the, quote, evidentiary record shows a genuine effort in ascertaining and taking into account the key concerns of the applicants, considering them and engaging in two-way communication and considering and sometimes agreeing to accommodation. So ultimately, actually, the court even put it more pointedly saying this was, quote, anything but a rubber stamping exercise. They're saying there were a, a whole host of new accommodation measures that were put in place specifically as a result of this new consultation exercises. And the court also reminded the applicants that as much as Indigenous persons can, Indigenous peoples can voice their opposition to a project, they can't use it as a tactical veto right. to block a project. So that's obviously welcome news to the federal government, which has been saying for you know months now that this project is in the national interest. So let's listen to what uh, first, Natural Resources Minister Seamus O'Regan had to say, along with Finance Minister Bill Morneau. What's really important about today is to anybody who says that you can't get major projects built in this country, you can. You can if you roll your sleeves up and you work hard and you do it the right way. And this is an affirmation of that. This is an important milestone. Uh, obviously, we're pleased to see that the consultations we had with Indigenous peoples were, uh, were looked at to be robust and uh, appropriate. Uh, there will always be more project hurdles. Projects that are big and complicated like this uh, present challenges, but we as a government uh, have resolved to make sure that we can get our markets to our resources to international markets, that we can get a fair price, and that we can do it in a way that will advance our climate change goals. That's the finance minister uh, responding to the uh, court decision today. Now, Marc-Andre, he does uh, talk about the fact that this project, uh, which has been embattled uh, for, for months and even a couple of years now, uh, could meet more hurdles along the way. So uh, how are the First Nations, 
uh, the people who brought the indigenous people who brought this case before the Federal Court of Appeal, how are they responding to today's decision? They're obviously very disappointed and frustrated. They say they're saddened by today's decision. They themselves have been fighting this for, as you say, months, years. Uh, and obviously they're, they're vowing up to, to keep their opposition uh, against, the pro against the project. So on that, let's listen to first Reuben George, who is the spokesperson for the Tsleil-Waututh Nation, followed by Leah George Wilson, the chief of the Tsleil-Waututh Nation. Reconciliation stopped today. Right now, today, so we're standing here together in this little bit delay that we have in stopping this pipeline because we're still trudging forward. We always said that we would do what it takes to make sure that we, we stop this pipeline. We have proven it. It's, it's not in the best interest of, of our nations that are standing here for Vancouver, for British Columbia, for Canada. This government is incapable of making sound decisions for our future generations. So we are and we will. And is not reconciliation the most important item on the Prime Minister's agenda? Did he not say reconciliation was important and the most important relationship to him was with First Nations? Well, we need to see some of that now. And so as for what comes next, we heard from Dustin Rivers, who's a spokesperson for the Squamish Nation, which was also a party in this case. And he said that his nation will consult with their legal team, with its legal team, and, and weigh their different options going forward. And all the parties in this case have 60 days to decide whether to proceed with an appeal. We should also note there are a number of uh, Indigenous groups in support of this project as well. Absolutely. Uh, along the route. Yeah. And, and the uh, company did sign agreements with... Dozens of yeah, them. right. Uh, what about the opposition parties? What are what are they saying about this today? Well, obviously, mixed reaction. The Conservatives welcome this decision, but what they want to see from the Liberals is more clarity. They want a clear idea of the timeline and assurances that construction will proceed. As for the NDP, obviously, they uh, are disappointed by today's decision as they they are stand opposed to the, to the project. So, on that, let's turn to Conservative Natural Resources critic Shannon Stubbs, followed by NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. So what the Liberals owe Canadians now is a concrete plan as to how they are going to address the outstanding legal threats and what they will do uh, in response to the threats that remain of all the blockades to block construction uh, by the opponents who have always said they'll use any tool in their toolbox to stop it. I'm disappointed with the decision. There's been ongoing concerns about the impact on the environment, ongoing concerns about the risk of uh, a tanker spill, an oil spill, and how it could devastate the coastline, and ongoing concerns about a lack of real consultation with Indigenous people. The, the, the reality is the government could be spending public dollars in a, a much more effective way. We could invest in housing. We could invest in uh, building infrastructure. We could invest in more meaningful ways to deliver jobs, make life more affordable, and help Canadians out than putting our public dollars, $15 billion potentially, towards this project. That's not a good use of our public dollars. And Peter, we also got reaction from some of the Western Premiers, notably, of course, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, who said today's decision is an important milestone, but that ultimately the, the crucial test of success for this will be whether construction is completed. We also heard from Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe, who called this a strong step forward for Canada's oil and gas industry. All right, finally, what do we know about... Uh uh, there's no, you know, there's no minimizing the, the significance of this decision today. It's a big, big deal for the federal government. Absolutely. Uh, we're, but well, we don't know exactly where things go next on this file. No. So the government cleared a major hurdle today, but of course, even before today's announced or today's decision was announced, we knew that the Slaywatooth and other environmental groups 
um, had actually appealed uh, to file leave to the Supreme Court of Canada on an earlier decision by the Federal Court of Appeal. So that's still before the Supreme Court, and we're awaiting a decision on that. And finally, of course, we'll have to wait and see whether or not uh, parties in this case decide to proceed with an appeal. But from their perspective, they've all made very clear today that this fight is far from over as they see it. All right. Thanks for this. I'm Marc-André Appreciate it. Thank you. The Trudeau government has revived a bill that would require sexual assault training for judges. The legislation first tabled three years ago by former interim conservative leader Ronna Ambrose is aimed at making Canada's judges more aware of sexual stereotypes and harmful myths in cases of sexual assault. It was passed by the House unanimously but then stalled for two years in the Senate and died when the election was called. Well, today, with Ron Ambrose at his side, the Justice Minister, David Lametti, retabled the bill as government legislation. Today's announcement, in fact, flows out of the hard work and initiative that Ms. Ambrose championed in Bill C-37, a private member's bill that sadly did not receive royal assent in the last Parliament. Just a short time ago, we introduced Bill C-5 in the House of Commons. This bill is designed to strengthen training requirements for judges and provide them with important insight into the myths and stereotypes that too often surround sexual assault. And this afternoon in the House of Commons, the NDP leader Jagmeet Singh asked the House to immediately pass the bill through all stages, but that required unanimous consent of the members and that was denied when some members cried out no. CPAC's Martin Stringer met with Rana Ambrose to talk about the government's revival of her bill and also about her thoughts on the federal conservative leadership race and why she decided to take a pass. Rana Ambrose, first of all, congratulations for your bill coming forward again, this time as a government bill. Is it the same bill that you proposed last time? It is, and it's actually better because my bill that was introduced in the House of Commons that was passed unanimously, co-sponsored by Tom Mulcair, in fact, supported by all parties, went to the Senate and it was actually amended um, by uh, amendments of a former judge himself former, and a former attorney general. So it worked out great. We had these great, smart legal minds uh, and they made a small amendment to it, but it made it stronger. So this bill is, is definitely my bill. It's, it's great and wonderful to see that the government has picked it up, moved it forward. It was in the election platform of Andrew Scheer, Justin Trudeau, Jagmeet Singh. So I always felt like no matter who wins the election, mm -hmm. hopefully we'll see this happen and we have. For those who uh, aren't familiar or may have forgotten what was in the bill, give us the main, main elements of it. Sure, so it's very simple. It mandates sexual assault law training for judges. Uh, it also mandates that judges have to uh, be more transparent in their rulings. So when they write them out, you actually get to see them. They don't end up in a back room somewhere and unable for, you know, unable for journalists or researchers to be able to, uh, to see. And it also mandates that there's ongoing training around things like stereotypes and bias, which in fact, our, our victims are protected from that in law. So it's also again about just learning the law. At your press conference with the ministers, you actually said that, that we are still seeing cases yes. of, of, of you know, judges who are showing that they, they don't get it. Yes, we are. And so that's the point of this. It's, it's Exam tough. Examples? Recent. Sure. I mean, recent examples, the Supreme Court just overturned two cases of judicial error in sexual assault cases. So those cases have to go back again. And just imagine that the most senior people in our justice system should know the law inside and out. They're presiding over sexual assault cases. Some of the most complex cases 
in the criminal justice system and they don't know the law and they make errors on things as clear as consent. Mm -hmm. If you don't know the law, the, the, the issues around consent in mm -hmm. sexual assault law, you shouldn't be presiding over a sexual assault case. And this is what's happened twice. It's gone to the Supreme Court and overturned and four times at the appeal court at the Alberta level at the Alberta Court of Appeals. So we see it happening. Look, at the, at the end of the day, Researchers, academics, advocates will tell you that Kim Campbell said it herself, a former attorney general, um, she made the point that sexual assault cases are some of the most complex cases in law and in practice. So all this bill does is say, we get that. We don't want to see more errors. We mm -hmm. want judges to get the training they, that they need. Uh, your bill passed unanimously the House of Commons in 2017. It sat in the Senate for two years and then it died on the order paper in the last days of the Senate because there were other government pieces of legislation. How significant is it that this is government legislation now? It's a game changer because with a private member's bill, the way the rules in the Senate work is that one person can stall a private member's bill indefinitely and kill it. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened to me, even though the House supported it, majority of Senate supported it, it just ended up getting pushed to the side. So as a government uh, bill, that, that can't happen. It has to be given priority, it has to be dealt with. We already know that the Senate was prepared to pass it mm -hmm. after they amended it, so my hope is that it'll get through quickly and with support of both houses. Now I can't speak to you without speaking about your decision not to run for the, conservative, the federal conservative leadership, and obviously there's still a lot of people who would have liked to have seen you run. I want to ask you though, um, as you look at the race and not being in it, uh, you presided over a party where you, you, you presided over changes to the conservative party. There, there are changes in direction or in decisions like accepting to take part in the uh, missing and murdered indigenous women's uh, inquiry and the change of the party in same-sex marriage and accepting and changing the party constitution. What do you hope for? What direction do you hope to see your party take when all is said and done in this leadership race? Well, I, th I hope that whoever our leader is will listen to what members want, not what the polls say, not what the media wants, but what the members want. We have a really broad group of people in our membership across the country that are just good, hardworking people. And they have good ideas. They were the ones that have pushed the party to make the changes in the right direction. You know, I may have been the person at the front of that parade, but our members supported all of those ideas. So what I, what I hope is that we have someone that really listens to people um, and supports their aspirations and really serves them. Is there um, a difficult reckoning to be had in the party with, the, uh, with the, the issue of social conservatism versus, for example, the party's position in endorsing same-sex marriage and accepting it and promoting it? I think that issue is dead. The party spoke to it at our last convention, and all the leaders that yeah. at least have, a, have an opportunity to, to make the cut and move forward support same-sex same right? marriage. I think, you know, when you look at party leadership races, and it happens in every, there's always these debates about issues that are difficult, I know where our party will land on this and it'll be in support of same-sex marriage. So I know we'll have the right path forward. A Western voice. So many people wanted you to run because of the you know, very poignant and very palpable anger right now and concern in the West. There is so far not a, a high-profile Western voice. Uh, concerned about that, that there may not be a Western candidate? Look, we have a very strong voice in Premier Jason Kenney, Premier Scott Moe, that are speaking very loudly for Western Canadians and Western issues, especially in the energy sector. But any, any leader of any party has got to get their head around the fact that people are suffering in the West. And I fully expect, and we've always had a leader in our party, no matter where they come from, 
understand that. So I, I, I know that whoever wins our leadership will feel the same way. Are you reaching out to millennials? I know uh, there was a sort of a survey and a lot of younger conservatives have spoken up in terms of some of the social issues uh, and some of the other issues. Uh, are you, are, is the party reaching out or are you concerned that the leadership race could choose someone who's acceptable to the party but not to the greater population? Well, we have some, we have incredible young people in our parties and they are active and they are loud mm -hmm. and they have a voice and so they will participate and they're the ones that work actively on campaigns. They will have them make sure that their voices are heard and they're pushing the envelope on the kind of issues that the party needs to address looking forward. It's really all about looking forward to the future and in no, no one's going to be successful in this leadership no matter how much they think they're a front runner if they don't listen, as I said, to the members who really want to make this party work. Last question, and I don't know if you've been asked this yet, but obviously about a few months ago, a rumor came out, someone had this rumor, that it would be a great choice if the government were to name Ronna Ambrose as ambassador to Washington. They said, <laughs> you've got all the credentials, you helped with the uh, NAFTA group, the NAFTA study group, uh, advisory group. Uh, can you clarify on that? That sure. rumor continues to swirl around. Yes, happy to clarify that it's a, it's a compliment, but I've never been asked. I've never been asked, but yes, I heard, I did read about that. Would you be interested? <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know, but I've never been asked. Um, but I'll continue to work with any government of any stripe on U.S.-Canada relations, you know, with the work that I do with the global, um, as a global fellow at the Wilson Center at Canada Institute. That is the number one nonpartisan body uh, in North America that works on Canada-U.S. bilateral relations. And of course, trade is a big part of it. Well, it's great to see you back on Parliament Hill, and we'll watch your bill with great interest, and thanks, thanks. For, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. A new report from Parliament's budget officer confirms that most Canadian households in provinces where the federal carbon tax has been applied will get more money back from the government than they pay in extra charges, although the amount they receive is lower than the office had projected last year. The study would seem to back the federal government's claim that its carbon tax imposed on five provinces to help fight climate change represents a net benefit to most Canadians. In a moment, I'll speak with the parliamentary budget officer, Yves Giroux, but first, some of the key details of his analysis. The parliamentary budget officer's report on the carbon tax backstop estimates the government will make $2.81 billion in carbon pricing revenue during the 2019-2020 year from Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario and New Brunswick. $2.6 billion of that comes from carbon taxes on fuel, while the remaining $213 million will be generated by output-based pricing for industries that pollute over a specified limit. The PBO estimates the $2.81 billion in revenue will grow to $8.27 billion by 2022 as taxes continue to rise. The federal government has promised that 90% of carbon taxes will be returned to Canadians in the provinces where it's collected, with the remaining 10% redistributed to small and medium-sized businesses and public institutions, such as schools and hospitals. The PBO estimates that most Canadians should see a higher amount returned to them than what they've spent in carbon taxes on fuel. The five provinces under Ottawa's imposed carbon tax backstop are subject to a $20 per tonne price on carbon as of April 1, 2019, rising $10 each year until it hits $50 a tonne in 2022. 
Saskatchewan will experience the highest average cost per household at $475 per year. This number will increase to $1,070 by 2022. New Brunswick sits at about half of that cost for now, but will implement their own carbon pricing this year. Well, Parliament's Budget Officer Yves Giroux is with me now in the studio. Good to see you again. Thanks for being here. Uh, this is your second analysis of the federal carbon tax. The first uh, was less than a year ago. Uh, why did you want to re-examine this? Well, we wanted to publish an update to last ones because uh, since then, a couple of things have changed. For example, Alberta is now under the federal backstop regime as a result of the provincial government decision to uh, uh, withdraw their own provincial regime. So, in effect, it places them under the federal regime. Uh, the second aspect that changed is New Brunswick has now decided to implement their own provincial carbon uh, pricing regime. So they will be out of the uh, federal regime as of April 1st. The other thing that happened, we have updated data from StatsCan, the Canada Energy Regulator, as well as Environment and Climate Change Canada. And finally, we wanted to include the impacts of the federal carbon pricing regime on sales taxes, which we did in this report but didn't do last time right. around. Right, and, and that does, as we'll find out, that does change the calculation a little bit, right? Yes. So it's worth talking about. Uh, but let, let's start with sort of the, uh, and, and you're not to be a political animal, and I'm not going to ask you to do that, but I want you to weigh in on the political conversation that's mm -hmm. taking place. The federal government's case is that the vast majority of Canadians will get more money back uh, from this system in federal rebates than they pay in additional fuel costs mm -hmm. because of the carbon tax, even people in Alberta. That's the government's case. Yes. Is that true? Uh, based on the data that we have and the analysis that we did, yes, it is the case. Even so, on average, people in virtually all quintiles, all income, income groups, except for the highest income earners, they'll be receiving l more in rebates than what they'll end up paying through the federal carbon uh, levy. Okay, why is that? Why is, why, why is it different across some incomes? I think I know the answer, but let's have you tell us. Well, it's because people with higher income, they tend to be bigger households. More heating one. costs. And more heating costs, bigger houses. They tend to have bigger cars, obviously, drive more kilometers in a year. So, and they consume more, generally speaking, and hence consume more, consume more of carbon intensive goods and services. So therefore they pay they are expected to pay more, on average, in carbon levy. Right, and or, or bigger families as well, if there are more members of a household, exactly. for instance. So, uh, at, are you able to calculate at what point, at what income level uh, that flips? At what income level do you go from uh, making more in a rebate than you're paying in carbon tax versus uh, paying more uh, than you're actually getting back? It depends on the province. It generally, it's between the fourth and fifth income quintile. So off the top of my head, it's about $130,000 per year of income, but it varies per again. Household. Per household, right. yes. And it varies ac across provinces, depending, for example, if a province, uh, if the electricity grid is mostly fed by fuel, uh, fossil fuel, or whether it's mostly fed by uh, renewables, for example. So it has an impact. And as I said, it's an average for income quintiles. It doesn't mean that everybody in that same income quintile gonna is going to pay more or less. You can have big differences across in the same uh, income range, depending on specific circumstances 
of the household. But, was, but even when you consider all that, your conclusion is still that the majority of Canadians uh, are getting more in the rebate than they're paying out exactly. in, in carbon taxes. Yes. Okay. You also note the amount, of, the amount of money Canadians are getting back in the provinces that are subject to the federal uh, backstop is going to be less than you actually projected last mm -hmm. year. How come? Uh, it's because we, last year we wanted to ensure that the comparison we did was the, the analysis we did was going to be comparable to what the government had published at the time. So it did not include the impact of sales taxes. This year, based on feedback we got uh, after last year's report, uh, we decided to include the impact of uh, sales taxes, the GST and HST, as well as provincial sales taxes. And that's one of the reasons why people on a net basis will receive slightly less than based on last year's report once you factor in the impact of GST on goods and services that will be slightly more expensive. And is there a day, are you able to say put a dollar amount on slightly or again does that vary province to province? Or? Again it varies across provinces. But is it a, a ballpark? Is it a ten dollars, oh, 20, about, 40, 50? It's about a three percent different in the gross cost so it's not a significant or it's not a material impact. Oh. It's still every dollar counts sure. but it's not like humongous amounts. The other claim that the federal government has, has made in, through all of this is that the federal carbon tax is revenue neutral. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Uh, we have taken that at face value and that's based on that assumption that we have developed these estimates. But the government has been pretty consistent in saying that it will return 90% of the proceeds from the fuel charge to, in, to households. I'm sure that if they were to deviate from that they'd pay a very heavy price in terms of public outcry. So we have used that as one of our assumptions. All right, uh, Parliamentary Budget Officer Yves Giroux, always good to see you, thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Well, that's all for this edition of Primetime Politics on CPAC, the cable public affairs channel. I'm Peter Van Dusen, thanks for watching. Now, stay tuned to CPAC, we're taking you live to Washington, where US President Donald Trump is set to deliver his third State of the Union address. And it comes the night before the US Senate is expected to acquit him on impeachment charges. So the context tonight is important. It's expected Donald Trump will use the speech to talk about his accomplishments for workers and families and warn that the policies of Democrats would threaten those advances. This, of course, is an election year in the United States, so this is likely to sound a lot like a campaign pitch, pitch rather, from the U.S. president. Tonight, we'll also be watching to see if he talks about the impeachment or whether there are any references to Canada, perhaps if he raises the new trade deal. The address is scheduled to start around 9 o'clock Eastern Time, but let's help set the scene by going live now to our colleagues at C-SPAN in the United States to join their pre-speech coverage. It's already in progress ahead of the State of the Union address.